right. Hello, welcome everybody. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do, and that's how we do it. I love. Actually, yesterday or last week, Rob uh, prayed something, and then I got up here and I said almost the exact same thing. And we were marveling at the fact that we didn't plan that. We can do it again. We can do it again. We can do it again. Yeah. No, but the reason the reason why it's always the same thing is because we're always preaching the same message here at our church. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, what he just prayed um, is the same thing that Chris was getting at in his call to worship. Sorry, and actually what you, he just sang as well. Uh, it's the same message that Chris was getting at in the call to worship. It's the same message. It's going to be at the heart of everything that we're going to talk about today. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the, reign, the current reign of Jesus Christ. All of this, it shapes and centers everything about who we are, everything about what we believe. So thank you for being here this morning, worshiping together, focusing together on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, And I want to say welcome back to everybody who's here for the first time uh, this week. We know that a lot of people here, a number of people actually, are back for the first time this week, uh, have their vaccines having fully kicked in, so welcome. We love having you back. It feels so right for the family to be back together. So welcome, guys. We love you. Um, All right, we're in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. That's where we are today. Go ahead, open up there. Today is the 17th week in the book of Acts. Uh, 17 weeks in, we're chapter 9. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We're going to be here a while. Um, And because of that, what, what I like to do when we do big books like this is break it up a little bit. So in just a couple weeks, moving into the summer, we're going to take a break from the book of Acts, and we're going to turn our attention to another book in the Bible, that is an amazing drama. It is a thriller. In some places, it's a comedy. In all ways, it's an ancient literary masterpiece called the book of Esther. Esther is one of the most enthralling stories of the entire Bible. And the more I study it, getting ready for this series, the more beautiful uh, it becomes to me. Because even though Esther never uses the name of God, never makes reference to God, never mentions a temple, never mentions the line of David... None of this, still, it has so much to teach us about who God is and what it looks like to be God's people in a world that makes it very hard to follow God. Esther is a timely and a beautiful book for us. And so starting in just a couple weeks, we're going to be putting Acts on pause, beginning our journey through the book of Esther. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited about that. More, more on that in the in weeks to come. So Acts chapter 9, 19 through 31 is where we are today. What we think is true uh, determines what we do, right? What we believe determines how we act. That's not always true, but it's usually true. It's not always true because we're not only intellectual beings, cognitive beings. We're also controlled by things like emotion. But all in all, what we think is true will determine the way we act, what we do, how we respond. So, for instance, if you want to go to Rochester and you believe that going south on Route 11 will get you to Rochester, then you will go south on Route 11, and you will get to Rochester. If you think that going north on Route 11 is going to get you to Rochester, you will go north on Route 11, and you will be disappointed. Rochester is not north. It is south on Route 11. Uh, What we think is true will determine what we do, and as that example tells us, it's important to get the truth right. If we get the truth right, or, or sorry, yeah, if we get the truth wrong, We're going to live wrong. If we get the truth right, it's going to help us make the right decisions in life. That's a minor example, but there's also bigger examples. 
If you think that that pain in your chest is indigestion and heartburn, you're going to take a Tums. If you think that pain in your chest is a heart attack, you're going to rush to the doctor. It's important to get the truth right. What we think is true will determine what we do. And this is true in our faith as well. If you think that God doesn't exist, then you will eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Why wouldn't you? If you think that God is just a cosmic grandma up there in the heavens waiting to bless us, uh, just hoping that we'll call, then you'll reach out and pray to him only when you need something. If you think that God's a cosmic dictator up there waiting to zap us if we do something wrong, then you're going to closely follow his rules, but you're not going to love him. If you think that God is the holy, loving father of the universe, you will love him and you will follow him and you will hunger to share him with the world that needs him. We could go on, but I think you get the point. What we think is true will determine what we do. So it's important to get the truth right. And last week we, see, we saw Saul was acting upon the truth, or at least what he thought was truth. He thought the message of Jesus Christ was a toxic lie that was poisoning the faith of hundreds and actually thousands of good Jews. But last week, he meets Jesus Christ. <laughs> this man who was zealous for God, who believed that the story of Jesus was a toxic lie and was trying to stomp it out, all of a sudden realized that his truth was wrong. That Jesus was not an imposter, that he was not a liar, he was not a fake, he was the Messiah. And now that he knows the truth, it will radically shape and redetermine what he actually does with his life. And that's what we see happen in this passage. Now that Saul knows the truth, it changes the whole shape and direction of his life. No longer is he a an opponent to Jesus and his church. He is a proponent to Jesus and his church. No longer is he the greatest persecutor. He will soon become the greatest preacher of his church. The question that we need to ask as we come to the end of this passage a little bit later is this. How does knowing the truth about Jesus determine what we do. How does knowing the truth about who Jesus is determine, shape, and direct our lives? What we think is true will determine what we do. How does Jesus change our lives? So that's where we're going today. Before we do, let me pause. Got some fluff on my face. I'm going to pause. We're going to pray. We're going to dive into Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, gosh, as we were just praying as the leadership team back here, um, God, this time is for really one purpose. The purpose of this time is to worship you and to take one step closer uh, to, to becoming like you, to, to delighting more fully in you. God, you are so worthy of our praise. You are so worthy of our love. And yes, um, being your people is a costly step to take. We're going to see that today. Father, we believe it's worth it. And so I pray, Father, that as we come to this passage today, that you would show us um, a little bit more about who you are, to help us understand why it's so worth it to lay down our entire lives, to even die to ourselves so that we can have a closer relationship with you, God. May Paul's example here challenge us. May it shape us. May it redirect us. In major ways, God, if that's your will today, or in small ways. So, Father, if there's people here today who don't know you, who are who are playing with the idea of you, tinkering over the idea of whether or not they're going to surrender to you. I pray that this time together in your word would begin to shape them and draw them closer and closer to surrender. And Father, for those of us who have 
believed in you, who have surrendered to you, I pray that you would make us see that it is not only right to be your servant, your humble, uh, humbly kneeling at your feet, but it is actually the most logical and loving and delightful thing that we can do. Show us that this morning, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Saul's mission was to destroy the church. Jesus appears to him, and he was realizing last week that the truth that he was following was actually a lie. And now that he knows the actual truth, he begins to be a follower of Jesus. He is baptized, his eyes are opened, and now let's see what happens next. Join me, verse 19. For some days he, that's Saul, uh, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and and of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is a scene we have to, we have to picture here. Saul was somebody who was well-known to all the Jews in Damascus. He was, he was well-known to be a persecutor of the church. And he comes walking into the synagogue in Damascus. And you can imagine that people who were there were, were thinking to themselves, Hey, there, there's Paul. There's that guy who came here for the purpose of destroying the church. Hey, Paul, how's it going, man? Long time no see. Welcome to town. Hey, I heard you're here persecuting the church. Uh, I hear there's some Christians over on Straight Street in Judas's house, if you want to go over there and just take care of that. But Saul, coming into the community, he doesn't come looking for Christians. He doesn't come looking for the people who are claiming the name of Jesus Christ. He comes for a different reason. He comes preaching the name of Jesus Christ. He walks in, in other words, as the enemy he came to destroy. We can just think about how jarring this would be to the, to the Jews in, in the synagogue there. This is the man who is making havoc in Jerusalem against the Jews. He came to town to keep up his work of ravishing the church. But what we have to see is that though this is a radical transformation in the heart and the life, in the life of, of Paul, his zeal for the Lord hasn't changed. Paul's zeal, or Saul's zeal for the Lord, hasn't changed. Before, he was using his zeal to persecute the church. It was his zeal for the Lord that drove him to the work of persecution. But now he's putting his zeal to new ends. Not to destroy what he thought was a lie, but to preach what he knew was the truth. That's what Saul's doing here in the synagogue. We see Saul, in other words, embracing the work of mission with the same zeal that he once applied to the work of persecution for the same reason, for the love of God. Because now that he knows the truth, he is preaching a different message. In fact, what Saul's doing here is what many Christians still do today. The moment that you come to Christ, the moment that you realize that Jesus actually is the Son of God, that he's the one who offers life and forgiveness and freedom from guilt and freedom to sin, how many new believers immediately and boldly start going to the people that they love saying, you gotta hear this message. You gotta believe this. And that's what Saul's doing here. It says in the passage he does it immediately and he does so boldly. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. 
Verse 22, they were confounded because he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul was saying that Jesus is not a fake. No, rather, he is the one that you've been waiting for. He is the promised king from the line of David. In fact, he is the true and better David who is ushering in the eternal kingdom, who died for the sins of not just us, but the entire world, who who rose victorious from the grave, who ascended to his eternal throne, and who will one day return to finish the work he started. And this Jesus is worthy of all honor and all glory and all praise. Man, Paul, Saul, is desperate for his brothers to know this. He is desperate for the Jews to know that this person that they were persecuting is not an imposter. He is the Christ. In fact, when we look at one of Saul's letters, uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 3, he says this about his Jewish brothers and sisters. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, Man, I am so desperate. I so want the Jews to know that they have missed their Messiah, that I am willing to even give up my own salvation so that they can be followers of Christ. Now that's desperation. He wants them to know that Jesus is the Christ, not a fake, not a false liar. And so in that moment, in the eyes of the Jews, uh, Saul switches, switches teams on them. And the word that Luke uses here in this letter is that the Jews were confounded. <laughs> that's a good word. And the word that's confounded here, it, it doesn't just mean confused or, or a little bit bemused. Rather, what this word means is that they were dismayed. It, it, it caused dismay in them. It, it troubled them. They did not like what they were seeing. Uh, in other words, the way they felt when they heard Paul <laughs> preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same way that you would feel uh, if your favorite Bible teacher, author, preacher started preaching Muhammad. It's like, what are you doing? Not only are you moving away from truth, you're propagating a lie, brother. What are you doing? <laughs> That's the way the Jews felt about Paul, or would have felt as he came in preaching the gospel. And so what do they do? What did the Jews do in response to this? Join me back again, verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They're back to their old tactics again. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So Saul, again, he was, he was a persecutor of the church, he knew the kind of response he was going to get from his brothers. He saw this coming. This isn't a surprise to Saul. He knew persecution was at hand the moment that he switched teams. He knew that he was now an enemy uh, of, of the Jews. And frankly, the Jews had good reason to be upset with Paul. Because not only was he preaching the gospel in the synagogue, the very message that they wanted stomped out, <laughs> his preaching was effective. His preaching was fruitful. People were coming to believe that Jesus actually was the Messiah. Do you know how I know? Well, because check it out. Who helped him escape? His disciples. Sorry, Rob. His disciples helped him escape. The people, this isn't the same disciples who who were with him on the road uh, to Damascus. After all, those were Jewish people. Those were people who did not believe Jesus was the Christ. These are people who have come to know 
through the preaching and the reasoning of Saul that Jesus actually is the Christ. The Jews are mad because Paul switches teams and he's bringing a crew with him. (laughs) So they're not very happy about that. He's preaching, people are listening, and believing. And so he escapes. Let's continue to read verse 19. Join me there. Or sorry, verse 26. Join me there. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, remember, Barnabas is the one in chapter 4 who sold his field uh, to give to the poor. We've met Barnabas before. We're going to see him again later in the book. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord uh, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Christ. And he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking to kill him again. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, that's a port town, and sent him off to Tarsus by boat, sent him back to the town where he was raised. Now, after fleeing from Damascus, it, actually, if we, if we jump over to the book of Galatians, we're not going to do this now, but what we actually know is that Paul's journey to Jerusalem actually happens three years later. This is jumping over a big gap in, in Paul's life, and you can see that in Galatians chapter 1 if you, if you choose to go there. But what we, what we see here is really almost an exact same replica of what happened in Damascus, but here now in Jerusalem. I'm going to put the next slide up here on the screen. I'm going to see if it's, yeah, it's very small. Uh, I wasn't sure if you could see that, but I'm going to read it for you. If you've got good eyes, you can look up here. Uh, if you just have ears, you can look up here. I'm going, to read, I'm going to share with you the parallel between what happened in Damascus and what happened in Jerusalem. In Damascus, Ananias wasn't so sure about him. And then in Jerusalem, the disciples weren't so sure about him. In Damascus, the Lord vouched for him. In Jerusalem, Barnabas vouched for him. In Damascus, he was baptized into the community, 918. In, Je- in Jerusalem, he went in and out among them, 928. In Damascus, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. In Jerusalem, he was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. In Damascus, they plotted to kill him. In Jerusalem, they were seeking to kill him. In Damascus, the disciples smuggled him out in a basket. In Jerusalem, the brothers smuggled him off to Tarsus in a boat. In Damascus, he led many to believe in Jesus. In Jerusalem, next slide, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Is there an echo in here? This is the exact same story told twice. Paul, coming to Damascus, experienced the exact same series of events as he experienced when he came to Jerusalem. He didn't learn from his mistakes. Or was it intentional? Because I think we get the point. We see the echo here. In this entire passage, Acts 9, 19 through 31, we see this story twice. And at this point, actually moving on in the book of Acts, Saul's going to disappear. We're not going to see him for about a chapter and a half to two chapters. And in real time, it's going to be eight years before we hear from Saul again. He's going to be in Tarsus that, that entire time. But later on, when we see Paul again, what we're going to recognize 
is that the exact same pattern that happens twice in this passage today is going to continue and repeat the rest of his entire life until the day that he dies. His zeal for Christ sends him out to bear witness to Jesus. Some don't like it, so he experiences persecution. Others believe it, and the church grows. That's what happens. Every single town he comes to, everywhere he goes, he preaches Christ. Some like it, persecution comes. Some, or sorry, some don't like it, and persecution comes. Some believe it, and the church grows. And Saul knew, again, the moment that he switched teams, the rocks were going to start flying at him. But here's what I absolutely love about the story of Saul or Paul, is that he doesn't pause for a moment to weigh out the options. You don't see him waffling over what to do, over whether the cost of discipleship is worth it to him. He's not making a list of pros or cons before he decides whether or not he's going to continue on in this mission that Jesus gives his disciples. He's not pausing to wrestle over whether or not this is a career move, a good career move. Paul or Saul, he is aware of the cost. He is fully aware of the cons that are ahead. He is fully aware that running for his life is going to become a way of life for him. But as soon as his eyes are open, this passage tells us that immediately he boldly went into the synagogue and trashed his reputation. Why? Because he gets it. What does he get? That Jesus is the king. For Saul, there's just nothing else to consider. This is the truth. If this is the truth and Jesus is the king, what else is there to talk about? And his Jewish brothers and sisters, they might have said to him, but Saul, you're, you're going to suffer for this, man. And to that, Romans 8.18, he says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. His brothers in, in, in Judaism, they would say, but Saul, you're throwing away everything you studied for. You're throwing away everything you've worked for. You're throwing away your reputation, your good name, your, your good standing in society. You're throwing away your career. What are you doing? And Saul would say in Philippians 3, guys, I consider everything a loss. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And he would continue, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. A crazy sentence. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Those are Saul's words. For Saul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so in this passage and for the rest of Saul's life, Saul models for us this foundational truth. That following Jesus is unbelievably costly, but it's worth it. That following Jesus is unbelievably costly, but it is worth it. First, let's think about this. The following of Jesus is an absolutely costly decision to make. In Paul's life, it proves it. That following Jesus is not a one-stop shop to the good life. It's not the secret sauce for happiness. It's not a magic eraser that will wipe away all of your problems. Following Jesus is an unbelievably costly thing to do. Let me read about Saul's life from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
This is what he says about his own life. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes last one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gal- Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. We get it. And toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these From the other things, there is the daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. Saul's life was costly. And the thing we have to understand, Christians today, is that Saul's life isn't the exception. This isn't the one-off where this guy had a really hard time of it following Christ, but it's it's easy for everyone else. That's, That's not the way it works. That's not the teaching of Jesus. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says, If anyone would come after me, that, that's a, just a way of saying, follow me, be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, if you want to be my disciple, Jesus is saying, hey, you need to neglect your own personal wants. Guys, you've got to forget your own personal needs. You've got to ignore your own personal rights. To take up the cross means to take up the implement of Jesus' execution to embrace the device of his death. Let me be more clear. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the cost is your life. You want to follow Christ, then you must die. You have to embrace a self-forgetting life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And any version of the Christmas, Christian, not the Christmas life. I would take the Christmas life. Any version of the Christian life that promises you anything different is a lie contradicting the clear words of Jesus Christ and the example of his people over the centuries. Following Jesus is unbelievably costly. It will cost you your life. It will cost you your freedom. But it is worth it. And that's the part that I'm going to convince you of now, if I can. (laughs) When you get married... What do you do? <laughs> I, um, I'm, I'm just coming out of this age now where all my friends are getting married. I'm very thankful for that. I am tired of spending all my pocket money on tickets <laughs> to weddings and to one-use suits. Weddings are beautiful. There's a reason we love weddings. But what's actually happening at a wedding? What's the commitment being made up there on that, on that stage? Every single wedding, we might say, is a double funeral. The reason is two people stand up in front of everyone they've ever met, stand up in front of a lot of people they haven't met, and they stand up in front of God himself, and they make a list of promises to each other, promises to die to themselves. They make a promise, (laughs) actually, think about this, they systematically go through a list of things they're going to give up for each other. They start willingly surrendering their freedoms, listing off the things that they would give up for the other person. Whether the road ahead of you is better or worse, I'm going to walk this path with you. Whether our life together is richer or whether it's poorer, I'm going to embrace that for you. Whether you are sick or whether you are healthy, I will love you and cherish you till death do us part. You list the cost at a wedding. How amazing is that? 
Because at a wedding, what we're doing is we're watching two people stand before each other and everyone and die to themselves and make promises that the other person matters to them more than themselves. Marriage is a permanent, loving, covenant relationship that is supremely costly. It costs you your life. It costs you your freedom. No longer are you yours, you are his. No longer are you yours, you are hers. No longer are you the highest authority over what happens with your time, no matter what happens with your, with your money, no matter what happens with your energy. You are your spouse's. You make all decisions together in a healthy marriage. Or maybe we can summarize it like this. Your marital unity comes at the cost of your personal autonomy. That's the commitment you make when you get married. But if that makes you think, okay, well, maybe I just won't get married. Well, here's the, the kicker. All love comes at the cost of your personal freedom. All of it. I'll just give a couple of examples from my own life. Um, I love my wife. The best decision I ever made after following Jesus Christ is marrying my wife. I love her from the depths of me. But on a Monday, when she wants to go hiking, I don't want to do it. Hiking is walking. It's uphill, and it's harder. And she wants to go on a hike, and I don't want to go on a hike. Amen. That's right. I, I don't want to go on a hike. I would much rather do anything than go on a hike. But Monday after Monday through the summer, I go on a hike. Every Monday, actually, I think I went to church. Um, and I'm always happy we did it. But it's not something I do because I personally enjoy it. I like it, but I really like her. And that's the reason I do it. Because I like her, and I know what it means to her. I love her, and I want her to be happy. I want her to be happy more than I want myself to be comfortable. That's why I do it. And that's what love looks like. It's a surrender of your freedom for the sake of another. And we all have experienced this, and none of us do it perfectly, myself included. I don't want to stand up here and give an example of myself doing it right. There are many times I do it wrong. But love is foundationally a surrendering of our freedom. That's true of marriage. Think about parenting. Yeah, I don't even have to explain that one. Yesterday, yesterday, in my backyard, I spent the entire day setting up a swing set. I don't have a passion for swing sets. I love my daughter. And when my daughter saw that swing set set up at the end of the day that me and my father-in-law worked on together, her face lit up like it was her birthday party. That's why it was worth it. And this is true even of friendship. I have a friend of mine, thankfully, I think he's one of the last people to get married uh, far away, and, uh, and um, he asked me to be in the wedding party, and he's going to be married in Oregon, <laughs> and, and I'm like, no, that's so close, um, and I, we were looking at tickets the other day, it is, it is a costly trip to take, I would much rather spend that money on anything else, uh, no, I mean, yeah, it's not a fun thing to do, but I'm excited to go, not because I want to spend all that money on a plane ticket, but because I love my friend. Because I want to be there for him. The price of my love is a surrender of my freedom, my wants. The cost of love is high. So why do we do it? Why do we get married? Why do we have kids? Why do we have friends? 
The answer is that because while freedom is great, love is better. Isn't that true? Ask any single friend of yours if they wouldn't trade their freedom for the love of a spouse. Ask any mother who lo- or woman who longs to be a mother whether she wouldn't trade her freedom to love a child. Ask any new kid in your class, any new resident from out of town moving into town, whether they wouldn't trade their freedom for a friend. Actually, don't, don't ask that question because you know the answer. And I, I, have, I have faces and names running through my head of all three of those examples, and I would never ask them that question because the answer is so ridiculously obvious. They would laugh in my face. They would say to me, Ben, that's the desire of my heart. I would love to give up my freedom for love. It is worth it to me. Freedom is great, but hey, love is so much better. And so what about the love of God? What about the love of Jesus Christ? What about a love that will never fade or fail, will never go away from the moment you believe till the end of eternity? What about that love? Is it worth trading your freedom for that? Is the freedom, is the, is the, is, is the cost too high? Is the cost of your freedom too high a price to pay for the love of Jesus Christ? Would you trade doing life your way for an eternity of divine, intimate love? Would you trade a life of comfort and a, a life of autonomy for the release of all guilt and shame? Would you trade your freedom in for an eternal covenant of relationship with Jesus? In other words, is it worth it to die so that you can truly live? I think it is. But I don't think you have to take my word for it. Let's listen to a few dead men. Men who have died to themselves so that they can have relationship with Christ. In other words, a few men who have said to themselves, yeah, that's a no-brainer. I would clearly, obviously, easily make that trade. First, the Apostle Paul. Like I read before, I'll read it again, Philippians 3.8. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He holds the things of this world, everything you could ever possibly want in this hand, Jesus in this hand, and he takes this stuff and he throws it away and says, this is so much better. What a no-brainer. Don't ask me stupid questions. I'll take Jesus. Read the writings of of Paul throughout the entire New Testament and you will find that he never sounds like a man mourning the loss of his former reputation. Rather, you will find a man delighting constantly in what he has found in Jesus Christ. You'll read through the letters of Paul and you'll read things like this, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Does that sound like a man who is mourning? And he wants so badly for us, for, for his, his Jewish brothers, for the, for the world, to have that same joy he has that he says the type of things that Chris said during the call to worship. 2 Corinthians 5, that he, Jesus, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for, uh, for their sake, died and was raised. So let's take it from a dead man 
Let's take it from Paul. For him, the cost of everything, the cost of his life was worth it for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's look at another man. His name, uh, you, you might be familiar with, his name is, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German, uh, and he started his life really in, at, the, at the social aristocracy of his, of his community. He was very respected, even well-off and wealthy uh, in, in his town. Uh, he ended his days in a concentration camp. He was put to death because he, in Nazi Germany, was unwilling to give up his Christian convictions in order to keep his head under the radar. And in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, aptly named uh, for today, uh, he compares uh, uh, what he calls cheap grace with what he calls costly grace. In other words, what he's comparing is is cheap grace, a a surface-level counterfeit faith, with costly grace, a cross-carrying authentic faith. Uh, Let's just read the, the parallel here. I'll put the quote up here on the screen. First, cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution, that means forgiveness, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's cheap grace. What about costly grace? Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. (laughs) For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Now he goes deeper into costly grace. He says this, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Beautiful. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because... It cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his own son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. I want to ask you again, does that sound like a man who is mourning? Bonhoeffer is calling us to imitate him in a Christ-carrying, authentic faith, teaching us that to surrender everything is not only worth it, it is just stinking logical. So let's take it from a dead man like like, uh, Bonhoeffer. The cost of real discipleship with Jesus Christ is worth it. I'm going to share with you my own story now briefly. Um, I came to Christ young. I truly believe that, and that I was saved at a young age. But what so often happens for people when they're saved at a young age is that you, uh, you're not, obviously, you're not really sh- fully aware of what you're doing, what you're, what you're stepping into, what you're giving up. 
That's true for everybody. As you go through life, you grow. You are sanctified. You're made to look more like Christ, and your recognition of, of, of uh, what you've been saved from grows as well. So for me, I do believe that I died with Christ and was raised again at a young age. But there was a moment when I was um, a couple months out of high school uh, that I was at my church. And I was, I was there for some other reason, but there was a, there was a worship event happening uh, in a small room in, in the main building of my church, and uh, I was walking by that room, and I heard the singing happen, and I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not in a rush, <laughs> and so I went into this worship room and, um, and joined them to sing, and I was, I was in there. They were singing a hymn by a man named Isaac Watts, and Isaac Watts was a theologian and hymn writer from the early 1700s who wrote many hymns, the best known of which is The Wonderful Cross. And a normal day for me, walking into this room, singing this ancient hymn. And these are the words that I sang with my own mouth. Were the whole realm of nature mine, in other words, if I own the entire world, that were an offering far too small, even that wouldn't be enough for what our Lord deserves. Love so amazing, so divine that it demands my soul, demands my life, demands my all. And for me, this is the moment that the words of Paul started making sense to me. This was the moment where I started to understand the implications of if the gospel is actually true. That everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus for my Lord, as my Lord. I count it rubbish that I may gain Christ. It was there in that room that all of a sudden it started making sense to me that, man, if this gospel is true, then no other promise of hope in life could ever deliver what I want in this world or in the world to come. If this gospel is true, then allowing anything else to shape and direct me in this life would be an absolute waste of time. And the thing is, did I live perfectly at that point? Did I live perfectly as a dead man, letting Christ shape me and guide me and walk perfectly in his way? Absolutely not. I continue to struggle to actually let Christ shape my life. I sin daily. I'm not proud of that. I long for that to stop. I long for the sin in my life to be weeded out of me. But for me, this was the moment where I started to understand the same thing Paul understood, and the same thing Bonhoeffer understood, that the cost of real relationship with Jesus Christ is worth it, even if it demands everything. And so if you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and this is, this is just new to you, and you are just hearing somebody up here saying, I need to die? What? I want to encourage you of this. Look at the Christian life, and if it looks hard, I'm not going to deny it. But talk to somebody who loves Jesus. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Talk to somebody who is walking with Jesus Christ and simply ask them this question, is it worth it? Is giving up my comfort, my, my, my personal desires, a life for my own personal autonomy, is that, is that worth it for this? And Christians, for us, I think we have a responsibility on the other side to live in such a way that we actually show that it is. <laughs> 
to live with the type of joy that we can actually have in Jesus Christ, seeking him for our joy, seeking uh, the union that we share in the body of Christ. And so Christians, my call for you, and non-Christians for you as well, will you die to yourself? Will you continually, day in and day out, step further into a life of further surrender? Because I promise you that if you do, you will be stepping further and further into a life of joy. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is, I mean, it's the most counterintuitive and the most difficult teaching uh, in the Bible. It's true that the gospel is so incredibly beautiful, and it's given to us absolutely free. We do nothing to earn our salvation. You have done everything. But Lord, what you call us to do is come and die. You call us to lay down our, any, any idea of our own um, earning that salvation and just fall fully at your feet. In other words, what the Christian life costs us is total surrender. So Father, will you help us surrender? Will you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see and believe that a life of fully renouncing our desires, renouncing our autonomy, is worth it for the sake of being loved by the one who loves us more than anyone else in the world? Will you show us, convince us that it's worth it? Will you become our Lord, Father, if we we call ourselves followers of you, teaching us? Father, that because you are good and you are the one that we have submitted to, that following you and your rules, even if we think they might be arbitrary, they are not, but actually perfect and good and for our joy. Will you help us believe that? And Father, I pray that as we go uh, today, we would be committed to living a life of further surrender and further joy so that though we die, we may truly live in you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Will you stand as we close and worship together, please?